Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This May, the Israel-Palestine conflict erupted into the most serious violence that we've seen in some years. Over the course of several weeks, Hamas and the Israeli army traded rocket fire and missile fire, while simultaneously, and for the first time in many years, riots broke out between Israeli Jews and Israeli-Palestinian Arabs within Israel itself. By the time a ceasefire was declared, more than 300 people had died, most of them Palestinian. The issues behind this conflict are complex, and in particular, it's important to notice and to try to understand why this particular round of violence spilled over into conflict between Israelis and Palestinians within Israel, including within mixed cities within the country that have historically been very peaceful and have been treated by some observers as models of coexistence. The issues are complex and political, but they're also legal, since one of the catalysts of this outbreak of violence was a property conflict in a neighborhood of Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. Getting inside these complicated issues is never easy. But today, in order to take a first crack at some of them, I'm happy to introduce you to a special guest. You may not have heard his name before, but I am looking forward to introducing you to him. Rabia Egbaria is a Palestinian Israeli who's currently a doctoral student at the Harvard Law School. He's quite simply one of the most brilliant students I've ever taught in 20 years as a law professor. Before coming to Harvard, he was a civil rights attorney with Adala, the legal center for Arab minority rights in Israel. 
In that capacity, he argued important cases before the Israeli Supreme Court, and he's also published fascinating and path-breaking scholarship about the experience of Palestinians living in Israel as citizens. As you'll shortly hear, Rabia has a distinctive voice and a distinctive perspective, both personally and analytically, on the conflict. And I'm very pleased that he was able to join us here on Deep Background. Rabia, thank you so much for joining me. Before we dive into our substance, I just want to begin by asking you how your family back home in Haifa are doing. Is everybody okay? Thank you for having me, Noah. I am uh, doing fine. I've been going through all the recent events uh, watching from the U.S., but my family is in Haifa, and they are uh, uh, currently fine, but it has been really hard times. Did they see or directly experience any of the violence that took place? Um, th- my sister actually lives uh, near a neighborhood called the German Colony in Haifa, and there has been a lot of uh, Jewish supremacist mobs that were roaming the streets, and so they were um, hearing the, the 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 mobs from their house while they were uh, basically locked in their house for about two days. And in your memory, in your living memory, has anything like this happened in Haifa before? It's a city that's often held up as a model of mutual tolerance between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Jewish citizens of Israel. Well, uh, not in my lifetime that I remember. I'm obviously. I want to say that I'm critical of this um, term of coexistence that is used many times to portray Haifa, and we can delve into that. But um, this eruption of violence to this extent, uh, both by private actors, by mobs, and by uh, state sanctions violence, is something unprecedented. Let's take a step back and define terms for listeners who engage uh, the question of Israel and Palestine, let's say, episodically, you know, in the moments when the media engages it. So let's start with just definitions. Um, There are Palestinians who identify as Palestinians, are ethnically Palestinian or nationally Palestinian, but are simultaneously citizens of the state of Israel. And then there are Palestinians who live in the West Bank and in Gaza, who are Palestinians but are not citizens of Israel. And then there are even more Palestinians Uh, who live outside of those places, uh, who are legally identified as refugees, who are also not citizens of Israel. Yes. What are roughly ballpark the numbers, uh, order of magnitude of each of these groups to remind remind people? Roughly how many citizens of Israel identify as Palestinian? Okay, so actually this is a great question. I usually, when I try to explain, you know, what is the situation, I use the metaphor of a hand, five Parts And there is five different groups of Palestinians, basically. As you mentioned, there's Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, which are, amount to about 20%, more or less, of the Israeli uh, population, of the Israeli people who have citizenship. Uh, in numbers, we're talking about somewhere between 1.8 million to 2 million. It depends how you count, uh, because there is the second category of, of residents, which applies only to East Jerusalem Palestinians. And it's a different legal status, very similar to citizenship, but with a lot of reservations. For example, people with residency cannot vote and the residency can be revoked. And effectively, people will be banned from living in, in East Jerusalem. There is Palestinians in the West Bank and there is Palestinians in Gaza Strip which is categories three and four. And the fifth and last categories, as you mentioned, is refugees. Now, 
As for numbers, research, it's been consistently shown that since the 90s, there's been an increase, actually, of Palestinians that identify as Palestinians despite having Israeli citizenship. And we're talking about roughly 60% of the population that clearly uses the, the term Palestinian in their identity. 60% of which population? Of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. I see. So by implication, that means there are, say, 40% of people who are ethnically or nationally Palestinian are citizens of Israel, but don't use the term Palestinian to describe themselves. Right. What, what terms would they use to describe themselves? So there is actually a variety of terms here that are at play. You know, many people are familiar with the term Arab Israelis. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's important to discuss this and put it on the table uh, it's it's actually a term that was an official term used by Israel to 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 uh, describe the Palestinian uh, or Arab Palestinian minority with citizenship inside Israel. But it's been a little bit deceiving because it's a official terminology that was imposed on many Palestinians after the establishment of Israel. Now, people might use a variety of, of uh, other terms. It no- doesn't necessarily have to be either Palestinian or Arab Israelis. Some people say, for example, there are 48 Palestinians or 48 Arabs, which is a term translated from Arabic, actually, to refer to people who stayed in the land of 1948 uh, after the establishment of Israel, after the Nakba, which is a term referring to the Palestinian catastrophe. Literally, it means catastrophe by the establishment of of the state of Israel in 1948. Now, other terms can be simply an Arab. Many people refer to themselves as Arabs in the uh, Israeli um, discourse. Arabs are distinguished somewhat from Palestinians. This is an important distinction because I think the term Arab is sometimes invoked to erase the, the Palestinian identity. Or, demar- or marginalize the Palestinian identity. So some people may refer to themselves as Arabs, which is the wider category. Others may emphasize the Arab-Israeli. Some would say only Palestinians. Some would say Palestinian citizens of Israel. So it varies. Now, the reason I'm asking about these terminological issues mm-hmm. is that they have a deep significance. And that deep significance is especially noteworthy now because they go to the question of the relationship in mind and in identity between Palestinian citizens of Israel and the rest of the Palestinian population and Palestinian citizens of Israel and the state of Israel. They they raise the question of what are the political identifications, the national identifications, and the political loyalties of Palestinian citizens of Israel, which are necessarily complicated. And in Israel, there is an ongoing discourse in which Some Jewish Israelis insist that Palestinian Israeli citizens are full, equal citizens of the state of Israel and should be treated as such. And other Jewish Israelis insist to the contrary, that Palestinian citizens of Israel are necessarily subject to dual loyalties, are not fully, therefore, loyal citizens of the state of Israel. And that's used often as a justification for, for example, refusing to include Arab parties in Israel in the coalition that becomes the ruling coalition of government, or other um, even more formalized practices of treating Palestinian Israelis as though they're they're not full citizens of the state. Mm -hmm. This is incredibly complicated, obviously, but say a word about how you think of Palestinian-Israeli identity and citizenship, maybe just speaking for yourself, since, Mm -hmm. as you say, it's hard to make statistical analyses of what most people think. Yeah, 
That's a great question. And obviously it's, it's, it's multifaceted, right? So I think that generally speaking, and I'm obviously speaking myself, I personally identify as a Palestinian or a Palestinian citizen of Israel, depending on context. I think that the status of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel is really complex. But at the same time, it can be summarized as very clearly as a subclass. So it's, it's a second tier citizenship and it, it manifests really in almost every aspect of life in Israel. It's important to understand that most Palestinian citizens of Israel live in separate uh, localities. There are a few what so-called mixed cities in which Palestinians and Jewish communities live side by side, for example, in Haifa, where I come from. But most Palestinians live in segregated towns or in separate localities, and they suffer from, there is a clear, you know, infrastructure problem. There's a clear discrimination in allocation of resources. There is a clear poverty problem. More than 50% of Palestinians are considered below poverty line. There is a huge problem with crime that is now proliferating among Palestinian society in Israel. And on top of all that, or could be as understood as a result of institutional policies that discriminate against Palestinians and that subjugate them to an inferior status, enshrined also by law. I mean, the recent developments from recent years we've been seeing is, for example, the enactment of a constitutional amendment, the nation-state law, that quite simply or straightforwardly defines the state of Israel um, or enshrines claims and identity of Israel to constitutional status without even reaffirming a purported democratic character. And so there is a clear institutionalization that manifests in different aspects of life from allocation of resources to discrimination in uh, housing that affects Palestinian lives in the everyday. Tell me a little bit about how you've experienced that and seen that, because, I mean, one of the fascinating things from the American standpoint about your education is that you have two degrees from top Israeli universities, a first degree from the University of Haifa, then a degree in law from the University of Tel Aviv, which is often said to be the fanciest uh, law faculty in Israel. Your professors loved you. I know that because I read their recommendations when you applied to, to be a student at Harvard Law School. You did your master's degree at, at Harvard Law School. Now you're a doctoral student there. And in between finishing law school in Israel and coming to the U.S. to continue studying, you were a human rights lawyer for Adala, one of the leading human rights organizations working on Palestinian rights. You argued cases in front of the Israeli Supreme Court. Obviously, all of this was in Hebrew. So you've been deeply enmeshed in a series of institutions within Israel, probably through a good part of your life. How has your identity been shaped and developed by that kind of interaction in pretty elite Israeli circles? Well, wow, that's, that's an interesting question because... I think, and you know, I, I tried to reflect on these questions in some, some of my writings. I, for example, wrote about legal education in Israeli law schools and being a Palestinian in that system. And it's a highly, highly complex situation because many Palestinians are coming to these Israeli elite circles or institutions and experience a deep sense of alienation going through these uh, experiences. We're using a language that is not uh, hours. I was born and raised, you know, speaking Arabic, and and I went to school in Arabic until I uh, reached university, which is the, the 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 traditional path for any Palestinian living in Israel. 
Uh, now, perhaps, you know, I grew up in Haifa, which, as I said, is one of the mixed cities. So perhaps you're exposed a little bit more to Hebrew as a language or uh, uh, and you acquire certain exposure that is limited otherwise in other localities. But yes, I think it's a highly contradictory situation where you go through institutions and you, you use a language uh, that is not yours. And that is a language, actually, that many times you're experiencing it as, as an oppressing language. And I'm emphasizing the idea of a language, but I think because I think it's really a medium through which you realize your subjectivity. And the content of conversation and the terms in which the discourse is, is shaped. You know, when, when you go as a Palestinian student to an Israeli law school, one of the fanciest and, and also sometimes described as a liberal law school, there is still a very clear limits to the discourse about how to talk about uh, Palestinian experiences and how to understand how the law works. And this Can you give us a concrete example? Yes, absolutely. So, for example, I, I love to give that very quickly about law school, for example. You know, property classes. When we talk about property classes, we analyze the doctrines and the confiscations, but we never touch upon how crucial this doctrine has been to Palestinian lives. You know, Palestinians in Israel have suffered mass expropriation of their property, of their land. During the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they were basically reproduced from an agricultural dependent class into a low-skilled, unskilled labor in the Israeli market force during these years. And this has, this has ramifications that are very clear until and striking until this day. And so everything in, in the class, when as a Palestinian approaches Law school is decontextualized many times. Other times we never, for example, touch upon the fact it's a discourse that is very, you know, present in America, for example, mass incarceration and the, the carceral state and the, the, trying to understand the law enforcement apparatus, how it, it interacts with minority groups or with racial violence. And these kind of topics are never talked about in Israeli law schools. And so this lens of looking at the law in context is very much absent many times from law schools. I would add, by the way, that I think a lot of students in American law schools would tell you that until the last decade, a lot of those topics were slighted in most of American legal education, too, with respect to, to race in the United States and particularly the, the history of, of white supremacy in the United States. But that, that doesn't make it any better. I'm just noting that, that that's the case. Mm -hmm. So w with that very helpful context, I want to turn now to really the, the reason that I wanted to, to have you on the podcast, and that is to hear more about your view about why this particular iteration of violence between Israel and, and Gaza, which started in certain ways that are very familiar, going back at least a couple of decades and in some ways longer. So violence in and around Jerusalem, unrest at Al-Aqsa, the Temple Mount site, rockets fired uh, from Gaza by Hamas into Israel, retaliation from the Israeli side with air attacks in which lots of people die, including lots of civilians. This is a script that we've seen multiple times before. What seems most distinctive this time is the violence perpetrated in some instances by Jewish Israelis against Palestinian Israelis, in some instances by Palestinian Israelis against Jewish Israelis, in a number of different cities and places around the country, including cities that you're describing as, as mixed cities. So the first question I want to ask is, and it's a really hard one, why this time? Why is this happening in your view now? That's an important question. I think 
the for understanding it, we need to zoom out a little bit and understand what led to these escalations. And I think the immediate point of departure would be Sheikh Jarrah. Um, in that- Good. So let's let's talk about that. Yeah. So that's Sheikh Jarrah has a, a neighborhood of Jerusalem in which there's been an ongoing controversy with lots of twists and turns, um, most recently involving a controversy that's headed for the Israeli Supreme Court. In fact, it's before the Israeli Supreme Court now, involving a number of houses. Do you want to give us the, the legal background? No, no one better for you than you to explain the legal background since as, as a human rights lawyer, you've worked on these kinds of cases. Yeah, so I think, I think the, the most important, to put it simply, what's happening there is that there is families, Palestinian families living in this East Jerusalem neighborhood that are now being brought to court by uh, Jewish settler organizations. And the idea is that these, these families who were resettled, part of them were resettled there in the 50s before Israel even occupied uh, Sheikh Jarrah. And they, uh, they were resettled because they were refugees from uh, internally displaced from Haifa, from other places. And now these settler groups or settler organizations are trying to claim this property by using a hook claiming that this property belonged to Jewish people before 1948, before the establishment of the state of Israel. So there is a complex, actually, legal situation. But what is important to understand is that this system works with two different rules applying to two different people. Palestinians cannot try to claim property uh, that was Palestinian before 1948. This path is only allowed for, uh, particularly in East Jerusalem, for Jewish, that is usually even not the the particular families of the Jewish people who lived in the houses, but Jewish settler NGOs or uh, or groups. And so, uh, we, what we're seeing here is is illegal. Just to, just to pause, yeah, just to pause to clarify the legal battle for people who aren't you know inside the inside the details of this. As I understand it, the position of the the settler groups is that these houses were lived in by Jews before 1948, when there was neither an Israel nor a Palestine. There was a, a UN mandate administered by, by Britain that, that in 1948, this territory ended up after Israel declared independence and ended up in a war with a number of its neighbors, including Jordan, ended up under Jordanian control between 1948 and 1967. Am I right? Am I, correct me if yeah, I go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, that, and that during that period of time, no Jews were permitted to or chose to stay within what had become Jordan. And at that moment, Palestinians who were internally displaced from other places within what had become Israel were resettled in these homes. They've been there since. And in 1967, Israel conquered this territory back. It subsequently annexed the territory, although its annexation is not recognized by the international community, but it is uh, recognized by the Israeli courts. And so in principle, under Israeli law, these homes are supposed to revert to whom? Are they supposed to revert to the original owners? Are they supposed to revert to the government? Somehow, they were supposed to revert to somebody, which has led to a claim on them being made by these Jewish organizations. Yes, but these these legal battles have been actually happening since the 70s, in Sosharrah and elsewhere in East Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that there is, on one hand, while the court allows bringing these cases when, and these claims by Jewish groups, it does not allow any claims by Palestinians to reclaim their property before 1948. Mm -hmm. And this is hugely problematic because these people, part of the Sheikh Jarrah families, were resettled there by the UN, by the UNRWA, in conjunction with the Jordanian government that was back then in the 50s 
ruling that uh, neighborhood. And, and UNRWA is the United Nations specially designated institution that essentially only deals with Palestinian refugees. I mean, that's basically its job, and it, it has existed since 48 and still exists. Yes. And so I, I, I really think that the words of the families themselves are put this very strongly. You know, they say, you settled us even here. This has become a Palestinian neighborhood for generations now. I mean, it, it was Palestinian in part as well before 1948. There is no dispute that some Jews lived there. Right. Um, but it, the dispute becomes also more problematic when these, not the exact people are claiming their, their property, but under some legal construction, it's, it, it's enabled for settler you know, uh, organizations to advance a political agenda. And many people have, set, have seen the viral video of Jacob from the U.S., the settler who is now living in Sheikh Jarrah, saying, you know, to the family, well, I'm not stealing your home. If I don't steal it, somebody else will. And this is part of the problem. There is people who are coming, you know, Jewish settlers coming from the U.S., part of them, and settling in this neighborhood with no ties whatsoever to the particular people who were living them, and they're destroying communities and forcing evictions and etc. etc. on Palestinian communities in Sheikh Jarrah. We'll be back in a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, 
Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. So the Sheikh Jarrah conflict was the catalyst here to drive this latest cycle of, of escalation. That seems clear. How does it relate in your view to the, again, this underlying question of why this violence in both directions in mixed cities? Because as you point out, there's been struggle in Sheikh Jarrah for a while. And also there have been other instances in which there was, you know, rockets fired from Gaza, Israeli aircraft firing missiles, as well as in, in, the, in the more distant past, um, Israeli troops in Gaza. So we've seen this kind of military escalation before, but without the corresponding violence within Israeli mixed cities. So I think momentum is a huge part of it, and also timing. We should understand this came against the background of Ramadan, one of the holiest months in Islam for many people who are practicing their fasting, and it ends with Eid, Eid al-Fitr. So, and and th- th- this evictions or, or um, forced evictions from Sheikh Jarrah came against this background, and as well as that escalated to raids into Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was one of the holiest sites in Islam. And this sparked... Um, a lot of tensions, a lot of protests, and the protests that spread across many different Palestinian communities in Israel first, before Gaza came into the to the picture, were start, what started as actually peaceful protests were brutally suppressed by the police. I know many of my friends who who protested actually in Haifa were arrested, detained, eventually some of them released. But what started as peaceful protests soon became the police crackdown on these protests, escalating the situation even more when uh, a Jewish vigilante group started joining this picture and killed and led the first incidents that led really to the further escalation in violence was a settler killed, an art settler, Jewish settler killed and led a Palestinian citizen and was later released by the court. He was suspected in killing, but then later released by the court after a lot of political pressure as well in the background. And so this is the... the, the, Released on the the theory that he had acted in self-defense, right? And there's a, if I'm not mistaken, that's the episode of which there's a video, which also has been widely, widely shared on the internet. Yes, which shows actually that he's shooting from far away. But... I think that this this situation when, where Musa Hassouni, the person, the Palestinian from Led, who was killed by the settler, the next day we see the eruption uh, of violence even more. We see that police is cracking down on the funeral of this uh, person, leading to even more uh, tensions and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And then it, it it spread to many different localities. Obviously, there has been also Palestinian violence, but I think we should understand here the forces at play. While Jewish vigilante groups. We're roaming the streets, coming, organizing on WhatsApp, Telegram, etc., and and going to Palestinian neighborhoods. Uh, there were actually no similar instances where groups were organizing, Palestinian groups organizing to go uh, to Jewish neighborhoods to attack them. Yes, there has been obviously Palestinian violence that I, as I understand it, reacted to the attacks by uh, mobs and as well as by the police. There has been, I think the police has been condoning these attacks while doing absolutely, almost effectively nothing to prevent these attacks. And this is, I think, what what is distinctive about this moment as well. We are seeing both private and state actors working on 
violence that is manifesting against Palestinian communities in Israel in an unprecedented way. Two thoughts on on that analysis. The the first is, you know, no doubt um, lots of Jewish Israelis would say that, you know, would, would say effectively, well, the violence started on the Palestinian side and no doubt, you know, most Palestinian Israelis and other Palestinians would have the view that the violence started on the Israeli side. Um, this is characteristic to, to outsiders trying to watch the conflict, right? Each side says, well, you have to understand the context. And each side says the other side started it, either globally or locally in a particular circumstance. And so one of the challenges to outsiders is to try to understand the deep structures that are driving the cycle of violence, quite apart from the particularized incidents. A second point which you make, which I think is very, it is significant to keep in mind, is that Israel has the state on its side, right? I mean, certainly within Israel, it has the government of Israel on its side. And then with respect to, to Gaza, it has a, a full-blown, powerful military, whereas uh, Hamas does not have anything of the kind. It has a handful of rockets uh, available at its disposal. So that, I think, is important context, without a doubt. What I'm trying to get a hold on, and I, you know, because I don't know the answer to it, is whether over the longer run, say over the last couple of decades, Israeli-Palestinians have started to feel differently about their relationship to the state, about their relationship to other Palestinians, about the treatment that they're encountering than they have in the past, so that there's some structural cause, as it were, of the protests, for example, that you described, which started peacefully and then, you know, and then met resistance and so forth, or whether it really is a product of, in a more inchoate way, of just building tensions. And in the, the story that you've been describing, it's is more a story of this happened and then this happened and this happened. I, I agree with that analysis. I, I, I get that that's what happened. But I'm trying to figure out, I'm puzzling over whether there is in fact a structural change in the self-consciousness of Palestinian Israelis, either they're identifying more with other Palestinians or less with the state of Israel, or that their identification hasn't changed, but they felt more desperate or alternatively that they feel more secure within the state of Israel and therefore felt safer initiating uh, protests and then were then surprised by the vigilante violence in the other direction, as well as the the, the police response. I mean, I, these are all possible hypotheses. I don't have a view as to as to which of them is correct, if any. But I wonder if any of those ideas or similar ideas make sense to you. Um, that's an interesting question, and I think it's a little bit too early, perhaps, to judge on recent events how they will affect the deep structure. I think that Palestinians have over the since the establishment of Israel, actually, in 1948, each generation of Palestinians has had at least one major protests that are very similar to what has happened recently, in some sense, where they reaffirmed their Palestinian identity. It happened with the second generation of after the Nakba in 1976, where um, Palestinians protested what is often known as the Land Day, against the confiscation of land. It happened again, 25, almost 25 years later, in the second Defada, and it's happening now with a new generation. And I think it's important to understand this because each generation is reaffirming its commitment to Palestinian identity. So looking from a bird's view, you know, like each generation has had this defining moment in which... Mm-hmm. Palestinian citizens erupted against structural uh, violence of the state. 
And you're absolutely right. For a person who is an outsider, it's hard to follow these events from, from this. But what is important to understand that there is a subclass of Palestinians that is struggling with a state, with its practices, and what has the recent events show it unleashed a militaristic structure that is still governing Palestinians. It's important to say, you know, Palestinians in Israel have always lived under the idea of second-class citizens, the idea of being heavily surveilled, heavily controlled, and heavily dominated. Let's turn to what this is going to mean going forward, with this very sensible caveat that we don't know for sure, and it's soon to tell. One trend that has been going on in the series of elections that Israel has been holding over the last few years, because there have been round after round after round after round of elections, because it's been impossible for any of the factions to produce a functioning coalition, Palestinian voter turnout has been going up. And the potential impact of what are called colloquially in Israel Arab parties or or Palestinian parties has risen. Um, They've even gotten some votes from Jewish Israelis. Maybe those are token protest votes, but there are are a handful of them. Um, And that, to many observers who were more hopeful, myself included, suggested a kind of willingness on the part of Palestinian Israelis to try to use the levers of political power that are available to them as citizens of a democracy to try to demand equal justice uh, and equal rights for themselves and, and for their communities. How do you see these events playing out that way? Are they likely to cause Palestinian Israelis to be less inclined to turn out to vote uh, or more? Are they likely to cause Jewish-Israeli political parties to be open to entering into coalition with Palestinians or less open even than they have been in the past, which is what my instinct would would tell me. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, where this is all leading. I have two things that I'm reflecting about this question. One is, it's important to understand that the protest erupted mainly by young people. I'm not sure that there will be a major change in the election patterns because many Palestinian citizens of Israel also vote on different considerations And so I'm not actually optimistic that we're going to see a deep change here. Perhaps, yes, perhaps, no, it's it's, it's too too early to, to, um, to judge. But I think that what we've seen is that it caught all the political readership of Palestinians in Israel by surprise. I think that we've seen in the last two years an inclination of Palestinians to cooperate or to consider joining a government, you know, the counterpart of legitimating Uh, Palestinians as uh, political allies is that Palestinians for the first time are actually considering joining the the government. And I think this, the recent event have been a blown in the face for many of these politicians that thought that, you know, we can gain some material benefits by joining the the government without discussing quote-unquote politics, you know, uh, or without discussing the Palestinian question or the Palestinian problem. I think it's too early to 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 see how this will implicate on on future patterns of of voting. What about on the broader sense of sort of social participation of Palestinians in Israeli life? I mean, when you appear in front of the Israeli Supreme Court as you have to argue a case, part of your winning your case is the legal argument. Part of it is how you are perceived as a Palestinian citizen of Israel who's a graduate of a law school where a bunch of the justices were professors, you know, um, and where a lot of them went to law school. You know, you're in some sense, same in the U.S. Supreme Court, the people arguing in front of the court are part of, almost by definition, a legal elite. 
when you think about how this is going to affect your career as a human rights lawyer or maybe as a scholar and an academic, how does it, what's the sort of personal takeaway for you in how this shifts things, if it shifts them at all? I think that the recent events have really been a breaking point for many Palestinians living in Israel. The experience, you know, of knowing that you can sit in your house and just hear mobs chanting under your house, death to Arabs, is really something else. It's not something normal. It's not something that uh, we've ever experienced. And still, I think that it, it surfaced a lot of the structural problems and it surfaced a discourse that has not been very present. And here I want to connect it maybe to the question of, of political readership. I think Palestinians in Israel are in need of a new discourse and new leadership and new imaginations, not only Palestinians, actually, but in order to break through this, you know, impasse of, of violence and of this vicious circle of violence, we need a new, a new imagination and in new discourses, and we need to a radical shift because otherwise this will just be, you know, oppressed and put under the surface. And I think this invites us to really deeply reflect and try to reimagine what is the deep problems here at stake and how we can solve them. And I think the solution will only come from a radical reimagination of the situation, from recognizing the experience of Palestinian citizens of Israel, recognizing the, the injustice that Palestinians have been living through for the last 73 years and trying to correct it from there. Otherwise, these tensions will always accompany, you know, Palestinians wherever they go, including me when I go to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's a highly problematic institution that is many times complicit and legitimates the, the ways in which Palestinians are expelled and are dis- dispossessed between you know, the river and the sea, not only in Gaza and not only in, in, in the West Bank, but also East Jerusalem and in inside Israel. I think even more crucially inside Israel, because Palestinians inside Israel are, are really suffering from a huge problem of permits, lack of permits to build and lack of accessibility to land. Rabia, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think no matter where anybody is on the political spectrum, and even if they may not agree with exactly the vision that you have. I think we can all agree that we're in desperate need of new imagination, new leadership, uh, and new conceptualizations in order to make progress in the ongoing Israel-Palestine struggle. Because without those things, I think we're pretty clearly doomed to a series of repetitions um, of the kind we've been seeing recently. And each repetition in certain ways has the capacity to be a, a little more destabilizing and a little worse than the one that came before. I want to thank you for talking to, to me here it captured, I think, some of the flavor of a lot of the conversations that we have one-on-one in the office. I was really glad to have an opportunity to, to share that with our listeners. Um, and uh, I hope your family stays well and that you have a, a good summer at home. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the fall when you come back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Noah, for having me. Talking to Rabia, I was struck by two different impulses. One impulse is to look backwards into the history and context of the Israel-Palestine conflict to try to understand the deeper roots of what's going on. Seen in those terms, every event has an antecedent. Everything has a before. And both Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Israelis, as well as other Palestinians, point to what has happened in the past 
as the real generative cause of what they experience as injustice and as unfairness. Seen from each of their perspectives, that history is determinative and needs to be understood and ought to be understood ideally from the perspective that they take. When we look at the problem in that direction, as outsiders, we can sometimes think that there cannot possibly be a solution because each time we look to what has happened in the past, we have widely divergent opinions of who is at fault. Meanwhile, the cycles of violence continue, and each time they get just a little bit worse. This way of thinking inevitably causes me to feel sad and depressed. And yet there's another theme that subtly emerged in our conversation, and which Rabia particularly emphasized at the end of our conversation. And that theme is the idea that each generation of young people, whether it's Palestinian Israelis, Jewish Israelis, or others involved in the conflict, has the opportunity to make its own mark and impact and to think in new and original ways about what's going on. That possibility of reimagining and looking at issues from a different perspective than merely the perspective of the past is the only credible chance that Israelis, Palestinians, and the rest of the world have at gradually making progress towards a solution that can be experienced by all involved, not as perfect, indeed probably not even as just, but as adequate to enable them to get on with their lives under circumstances and conditions of peace. To get there, we will need new voices and new perspectives. A final note. In a long career of thinking about, writing about, and studying the Middle East, including Israel-Palestine, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that no particular article, book, program, and certainly not one episode of a podcast can cover all perspectives, and none can be, quote, perfectly balanced. The reason for that, of course, is space and time, coupled with the reality that there is almost no statement or proposition, whether descriptive, historical, or moral, that anyone on any side of this conflict can make that cannot be actively disputed by someone on the other side. I therefore think it's always a mistake to imagine that one isolated conversation will be quote-unquote balanced or quote-unquote complete. That's why it's important to hear different voices from different perspectives, and I assure you, you will hear different voices and different perspectives when we discuss this subject going forward further on Deep Background. In the meantime, from the team here at Deep Background, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated.